Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing edition of Market Impact Insights. And we are going to talk about something that all of us can relate to in our professional lives, and that is security. How secure do you really feel? And from the standpoint of cybersecurity, how well is your organization positioned to protect itself from any imminent threats? And I don't need to tell you this is a big strategic issue. It's a huge financial area of investment. I was just looking at some Forbes data recently. The total market for cybersecurity estimated at $173 billion in total in 2020 and projections that that could grow to as much as $270 billion by 2026. At the same time, a lot of research going on around cybersecurity. Gartner study earlier this year projected that the rate of investment growth year by year might be slowing down a little bit from double digits to single digits by 2023. I also was looking at some McKinsey research, which really reinforces the importance of focus around the cybersecurity investments and the efforts in the face of what could be additional budget challenges through the pandemic. In fact, 70% of chief information security officers in that study and security buyers believe that budgets would shrink by the end of this year, but they intend to ask for more increases. So there seems to be this opportunity to strategically invest, but do it in the right way that demonstrates to boards and senior leadership that it's getting the right results. And I can't think of someone better than today's guest to help us wade through this whole area of cybersecurity, risk, and compliance than Edna Conway. I've known Edna now for, gosh, 20 years. Uh, Edna currently serves as Vice President and General Manager of Global Security, Risk, and Compliance for Microsoft's Azure platform. She's responsible for the security, resiliency, and governance of the cloud infrastructure and supply chain upon which Microsoft's intelligent cloud business operates. She's built new organizations that deliver cybersecurity, compliance, risk management, sustainability, and value chain transformation. Now, prior to joining Microsoft, Edna served as Cisco's chief security officer for the global value chain, where she drove a comprehensive security architecture across Cisco's third-party ecosystem. Edna is a world-renowned expert. She's been recognized domestically by the U.S. Presidential Commission and globally by NATO as a developer of architectures delivering value chain security, sustainability, and resiliency. Her insights have also been featured in a wide range of publications, analyst reports, and case studies. And those include just a few you might have heard of, like Forbes, Fortune, Bloomberg, 
CIO Magazine, and of course, the Wall Street Journal. Edna was appointed to the Executive Committee of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Task Force on ICT, Supply Chain Risk Management. She also serves as a board member and independent advisor for many different organizations. And prior to her experience at Microsoft and Cisco, Edna was a partner in an international private legal practice and served as the Assistant Attorney General for the state of New Hampshire. So live from New Hampshire today, it is a privilege to be joined by Edna Conway. Edna, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. What a privilege to be here. And everything is going well here in the live free or die state, Dan. <laughs> Fantastic. And there's just so much uh, that I'm looking forward to covering with you and, and maybe a great place to start. As I mentioned, your career started in law, including public service uh, within the state government. And I'm curious, what drove you in that direction? And maybe what are some of the most meaningful things that you gained from that experience that you're continuing to apply today as you have transitioned and grown your career in technology? And any mentors along the way? Oh, well, that's, there's a lot built into that question there. So let's go back for a minute and start at the beginning. You know, I still remember often my mom used to say to me, uh, you know, Edna, don't always think that you have to have a plan because sometimes, and this is certainly true for me, life is what happens along the way. So when I got out of law school, I was going to focus on environmental law because even way back in the 1970s and 80s, the health of our planet was a real concern. And so the AG's office in New Hampshire, as you can imagine, was uniquely focused on this, given the nature of our state, the beauty that is here and our desire to protect it. And so I joined with every intent to go into environmental law particularly thinking about materials, substances, uh, hazardous waste, et cetera. I arrived and the attorney general pulled me into his office and he said, Edna, we've decided after looking at um, our understanding of you and your personality that we're going to make you the first uh, woman over in the criminal bureau. And I looked at him and I said, what? And so I joined the criminal bureau because they told me to. And I was all of, you know, just barely 25 years old, straight out of school. Here's the irony of that. It was the best experience for anyone straight out of law school. I did just homicides um, and Supreme Court work, the cream of the crop. And what was intriguing was even though I had a drive to engage in public service, the reality was that it gave me a different lens on public service. It gave me a different aspect to think about in terms of the community, particularly working with those in law enforcement, which was something that I had not experienced prior to that. And what I gained was some really meaningful things um, that stayed with me for a long time. And I still try to adhere to today. So talk less when you speak. And when you speak, speak with power. Be quiet when you're winning. Sometimes we argue too much. And then the last piece was be comfortable with not knowing everything. Because it was impossible to, no matter how well you prepared, not have something crop up in the course of the litigation that you had never anticipated 
a new witness, a new piece of insight that came out of a witness's mouth that you had never thought of asking or they had never shared before. So you asked something else that was intriguing, which is were they key mentors along the way? Um, I have to say, um, I don't know if I'd call them mentors, but there were um, two wonderful men who, one of whom is no longer with us and one of us is still practicing law in New Hampshire, who sort of just said, here, and threw me into the water. Um, one of them was a former New Hampshire Supreme Court Justice, uh, Judge Batchelder, who was fantastic, pulled me aside after the first couple of Supreme Court oral arguments and said, I've not seen somebody who presents like this. This is, you know, useful. Um, it's different. It's intriguing. Do this, this, and this, and do more. And that was it. I mean, that was the guidance, right? <laughs> um, and then our attorney general at the time, a gentleman named Greg Smith, who was just uh, fantastic and had the foresight to actually see who I was when I didn't know who I was and said, you think about things in a holistic way. Um, you have a way in presenting, and we would love to have you in the criminal bureau, which was his nice way of saying that's where you're going, Edna. <laughs> And I see we have the uh, the dog nearby as well, so uh, definitely getting into that. Uh, and some powerful truths in there, Edna. That uh, you know, it's it's hard to always uh, understand the ebbs and flows of where a career takes us. But you know, when you talked about the value of just on the job experiencing it, something you haven't done before, there's no substitute. You can do classical training, but until you actually just jump in with both feet. Uh, jump into the water and and start swimming. So definitely uh, relate to that. And so shifting more over to your focus now, we all know that security and compliance has never been more important than they are now in a world of a lot of change, a lot of disruption. And I'm curious how your views of security have changed from when you first transitioned over to the private sector about 30 years ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had to pay the dog a lot of money to make sure that he growled exactly when I was talking about homicide. So that's <laughs> a good job. He well found a treat. Um, it's thanks. Thanks for uh, everybody recognizing we're all working from home these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> the was, new normal. You know, it is the new normal. I was in private practice of law for, uh, for quite a time before I joined a technology company. And I guess I'll answer you on how did security start, right? I mean, I saw themes that applied across different industries. I mean, I was working with hydropower companies, XML laser technology companies, and software back when software was not common parlance. And what was intriguing was watching the fledgling impacts of digitization. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, places that relied on air gapping couldn't any longer. Today, we're dealing with the realities of that. And I think what we've seen is a change over those 30 years. The degree of interconnectedness, I think, has increased the complexity of security, right? I mean, 30, 35 years ago, mm -hmm. you could look at somebody in uh, OT, in let's say critical infrastructure provision, let's make it energy delivery. And they would say, my SCADA systems are secure because they're air gapped and they're separate. That's an intriguing concept. 
move to what we've seen happen, which is not just convergence of IT and OT, but the reality that we're now all moving to a platform economy. And what that means is that digitization has caused a decrease in focus on a balanced, comprehensive approach to security. We all moved. If you ever watch five-year-olds play soccer, Dan, right? They all follow the ball. Watched a lot. Right? They played the field. And so for a period, we saw everybody say it's all cyber all the time. And that is an intriguing concept. I'm going to argue that Cybersecurity is actually comprehensive security. And what it means is not just information security, but that a comprehensive approach is essential to success. And I'll give you an example. There was a prototype that I had the privilege of reviewing, you know, one of our um, VPs of an engineering group uh, at a prior employer brought me over to look at it. And I said, this is, this is fantastic. It was something today that you would say is, is very mundane. It's um, the concept of communicating the way many of us communicate now over video conference. And how do you do that in an enterprise level and an enterprise class uh, communication capability where you can have multiple people doing it? And as I looked at it, I sort of crawled under the prototype, under the desk, and I looked at the actual structural integrity of what was holding, if you can go back to the days when you didn't have LCDs and we were still using plasma screens, they were heavy, Dan, right? Yeah, I looked big. And I said, so you've got three big plasma screens sitting on a piece of metal that's about an inch, maybe an inch wide. And we're going to put this in large enterprises, in multi-story cities, in big buildings, Has anybody thought about the structural integrity and whether or not we need to A, widen it and or whether or not we need to reinforce the flooring of the room in which it's in so that it doesn't land several floors below? And everybody looked and I was like, sometimes it's good to have a mechanical engineer in the room. (laughs) That's right. It's, It's like, oh my gosh, the question they overlooked. Right. So that's the comprehensive approach to security that we now need to take. And I'd urge all of us as cyber experts to not swing the pendulum to all InfoSec all the time, but rather think about a layered approach to comprehensive security. So what you were saying makes a lot of sense in terms of a comprehensive approach to security. But what are some of the biggest hurdles you're still currently facing as you try to go out and continually build awareness and integration of a security risk and compliance lens into the strategic planning and execution of a really large global technology company such as Microsoft. Yeah, so it's um, it's certainly a worthy challenge. Let's let's put it that way. I think we and our industry are really driving methods to think about how to bring security and risk analysis right to the forefront and build it in, build it in across the entirety of the life cycle of any solution. Obviously, I live in the Azure world. So I'll give you an Azure example, if I may. Uh, For us, what we're doing is building an architecture that has fundamentally two pillars. And those two pillars are security and resiliency. And they include, however, to start with, what does that challenge look like when you really say the words comprehensive approach? What does it mean? It means you have to start with requirements for your own internal organization, 
as well as the third parties that comprise that external ecosystem that is part at some stage and in many stages of the life cycle of your solution. So you start with, okay, I'm going to look at two pillars, security, resiliency, and then you think about both your own family and the extended family, because our customers look at us as one. There's only a we. And then you look at a way to approach it and make it reasonable and feasible rather than try to be monolithic and write something that applies across the board. How about actually, and this is what I've been on a journey to do, is understand the activities that are taking place that are fundamental. So you can now write requirements and map them to the specific nature of an activity that's undertaken, you yourself in your own enterprise or in your third-party ecosystem. And that's where you start to get flexibility, elasticity, right? And you get this building awareness and integration because instead of going to somebody and saying, here are my 742 requirements built off of NIST 853, you say, you know, I have two pillars, fundamentally security, right? And security is comprehensive. It means physical, logical, operational, behavioral, and information security, as well as privacy. And I have resilience and I can talk to you about what's there. But what I've done is I've understand, uh, understood exactly after a, a long series of discussions, what you do in your organization. As a result, I can tell you which requirements apply to you because you do design and development. You don't do inventory management, or you do assembly. You do facilities management. You do destruction. You do hazardous materials management. You actually do sourcing and procurement of software. You do sourcing and procurement of programmable devices or things like FPGAs. And all of those activities and understanding them give you a way to break down this huge, complex monolith into something that is resilient, meaningful, and implementable practically. I like where you're going with that, Edna. It's it's not taking a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's really engaging with the leaders in each of their areas of expertise on what's relevant for them, right? As opposed to kind of a standard more, as you said, monolithic approach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Makes a lot of sense, uh, definitely. So another major macro trend that's been noted over the past few years has been this huge move to the cloud. And I know that you've spoken about the fact that, and you mentioned earlier on this podcast, uh, that we're moving to this idea of a platform economy. Can you go into that a bit more and exactly why that's a big deal for security risk and compliance? Yeah, well, I, you know, this is a view that I started uh, thinking about and speaking about last year, where I think folks are aware of there's been a lot written about a platform economy, but it, we are in a new stage of it now, right? So when I say platform economy, I think what I mean is we live in a world of platforms. They're pervasive in industry and they're pervasive in our personal lives. From integrated factories that are leveraging a single platform for visibility to operations, like maybe an Azure with a HoloLens that gives you visibility to OT, IT, real-time sensors, etc., to 
what we all use back when we were actually going anywhere, our own personal use of on-demand transportation platforms. What's intriguing to see is the foundation of that platform, both at an individual level and at an enterprise and government level, is cloud and mobility technology, period. That's it. They are the foundations. And certainly at Microsoft, we strive to weave our many Azure solutions into the very fabric of our customers' business. When you say that, you also have to think about the responsibility that it brings along with that weaving. You are now part of what will make a difference into the success of your customer's business. You need to enable it. You need to go with the flow on demand variation, et cetera. And so I think taking a flexible approach that allows you to say, I'm going to weave in security and resilience in a way that is goal-based across the variety of what I offer on this platform allows us to address concerns that are, quite frankly, themselves really different. I mean, think about things like information security versus export compliance or trade compliance or human rights versus role-based access control and identity management. All of those sit on one side of security or resilience, and yet all of them are fundamental to that commitment to that customer. So I always like to say the more our customers rely on us, the more trustworthy we need to be. Optime, enabling them to conform with regulatory mandates, impacting their businesses, ensuring that the foundation that they rely on, us, is free of compromise, which may be coming from so many directions, right? And that it's delivered in a manner that doesn't negatively impact our planet and is adaptable as their needs change. Imagine, for example, you know, I need high compute and low storage capacity. That can rapidly become a need for, I need low compute and more storage capacity. How can you think about those kinds of trends and that kind of commitment? That's only if you think about things as a platform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you're talking about those trends, we also know that we're seeing really rapid adoption of these significant emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. And I'm curious, do you feel like that also poses any additional risks that need to be recognized in creating a safer future? Yeah. So I think what we're seeing is, um, quite frankly, a commitment not only to the workforce, but a commitment to ethics. And as our reliance on data grows, you're starting to see questions that come up that started things, things like data sovereignty. Who owns it? How are you going to utilize it? Who gets to say who's going to control it? Now put the concepts of artificial intelligence on top of it and think about the ethics that are involved in that. I mean, let, let's be honest, the enhanced productivity and speed that AI can deliver is an enabler across not only all industries, but all governments. Right? It's, it's inevitable that it will help us. What is not inevitable is that we will do it in what I would call 
the right way. And that means what we must and what we certainly at Microsoft are doing is validating that the way in which we both develop the AI itself, as well as the way in which we deploy it, is imbued with what I'll call checks and real-time balancing. And those checks and real-time balancing efforts need to focus on about three or four fundamental things. There are more we could talk about. But I would highlight systemic vulnerability gaps, Security 101. How are you How are you doing that? How are you balancing for that? Does the AI address it and can it morph swiftly? How about inherent human unconscious bias? There's been more training about unconscious bias, I think, in the last five years than ever existed before. We continue to understand ourselves better, hopefully evolve as a species, but understanding unconscious bias does not mean eliminating unconscious bias. So how do we imbue that AI with a check and a balance for it? Do we do analysis um, after a certain period of time to see what the findings are? Are we seeing a skewed perspective come out? Um, Do we build those checks and balances? Remember I said in two places, right? Not just in the deployment of it, but in the development of it. How do you check and build this in? And I think the third thing that you still need to check and a balance on is recognizing that AI has to validate data accuracy and integrity from multiple sources before any trend or conclusion can be drawn, right? I mean, I go back to, you know, all of us at some point had a mother or a mother-like figure, hopefully in our lives. At some point, someone told you a couple of fundamental premises, and there's a reason why these sayings stick with us, right? Uh, One is you get what you pay for. And the second one is never judge a book by its cover, validate, validate, and validate, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you go and you want to buy a car now, uh, presumably you have reached the stage of maturity in life where you are not where all of us were when we were 18 and you went after the you know fastest engine that was colored red that you could afford. Those were the criteria. <laughs> Let's be honest, Dan, right? We were all there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, now what you do is you say, hmm, I'm going to go check and see if this has been in an accident. I'm going to see what the comparable feature set is on another manufacturer's product. I'm going to see what Consumer Reports says with regard to safety, et cetera. Make sure that we build checks and real-time balancing into the AI to validate not only data accuracy and integrity, but do it across multiple sources before we can say, ah, here's the rule, trend or conclusion X can now be drawn. Because at the end of the day, that's inherent to the functionality and productivity that AI delivers. And then finally, the fourth thing. So you got vulnerability gaps, inherent human unconscious bias, making sure you have multiple sources before drawing a conclusion. And finally, privacy demands. Do we build privacy in to the way in which we develop and actually deploy artificial intelligence? Absolutely, we must. We simply must. Well, that's a really complete 
breakdown of, of what needs to be considered. And it shifting gears a little bit because um, that's more the emerging technology uh, type of impact, moreover to uh, what's happening in supply chains. So, and, and we're thinking much, much more about that because of some of the effects and disruption that we're seeing already with the global pandemic to supply chains. And I worked for several years in a technology solutions business that was focused around optimizing supply chains. So I paid really special attention to when you recently mentioned that interconnectedness of supply chains was one of the most significant areas of impact in our current COVID-19 crisis. Can you explain that a little bit more and any other security risk and compliance impacts you're seeing from the new normal that's being brought on by the pandemic? Yeah, I think um, (laughs) it's intriguing to think that it took COVID to expose some of this. We talked about it earlier to some degree. We now have a global third-party ecosystem. I'm not sure we fully appreciated the impacts of reliance on that global third-party ecosystem. We saw pieces of it. We've seen it before, right? We saw it when um, people couldn't fly over Europe because of the Icelandic volcano or, you know, the impact of a tsunami in a particular part of the world and the unavailability of a particular set, perhaps, of technology components. But what we haven't seen is something of the magnitude globally that we're experiencing now. And the reality is that we do have a global ecosystem, not just for information and communications technology and services, but for everything. And the other thing we have to rely on is the people. And so COVID exposed Reliance on a global third-party ecosystem means something and it has impacts. And a reality that no matter how hard we try and how efficient we get, we are still dependent upon the availability of people, our most valuable assets. Let's not forget we built all this digital technology in order to assist us, the humans, not the other way around. And so you can see it in various aspects. I mean, I don't know about you, but if have you tried to buy uh, an appliance lately, Dan? Uh, I I did. It's crazy, crazy. I it, it, it is. Uh, talk about buying a freezer, right? Extra storage freezer, and uh, that was a story unto itself. Yeah, yeah. My refrigerator died, and I had, was blissfully ignorant because I live in my special information communications technology bubble. Uh, and was not necessarily fully aware of the ramifications of COVID on the home appliance industry. I went to go look for one, and not only were there none available, the lead times were not even capable of being assessed. So you had a convergence of a global complex network. Here's the human element, unavailability of labor. (laughs) And then you had the triple whammy, of raw materials availability. Those three have impacted virtually every sector of the economy, not just where I live or where you live. And so you might say, well, Edna, that's fabulous. How does that impact security risk and compliance? Okay, couple things. Uh, You've got new people doing new roles. Uh, We're all pinch hitting. New people create new risks. Maybe a good thing, but you still need to be aware of and assess those risks and address them. 
providers might be reducing the normal level of rigor that they have around security to get things done. We all know another one of those wonderful mother uh, statements, don't rush, do it right. Well, when pressure comes and you have to do something in a time period, something has to give. I wonder if any of that impacts security inherently adding to the nature of risk. Some folks might be, for example, incorporating alternative code or other third-party tangible raw materials into the infrastructure that they're delivering. Have we done the kind of rigorous risk assessments that we would have done before? The risk assessments might be delayed or they might be completely foregone. That's a direct impact on the world of security risk and compliance. Great examples. Uh, just disruption, the appliances, uh, definitely fitness, home fitness equipment is another great example with just astronomical lead times. And so it is a, a new reality and uh, something that we're all dealing with. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit and uh, more over into a, a very, very compelling topic, and that is effective leadership. And highly effective leaders are known for keeping an eye on maintaining and building very healthy cultures. So I'm curious, as a highly visible and recognized leader in your field, what are some of the most important things that you've done to continue creating and maintaining a positive culture and maximizing your team's contributions to the larger organization? So this is one thing you can always count on when you have a conversation publicly with a friend who's known you for a long time. <laughs> I think a couple of things, and I, I think I'm not repeating something that folks haven't said before, but you need to know yourself. Lots of folks talk about you have to have a culture that allows people to bring their authentic self. We don't always have the same personality everywhere, right? You have a private life, you have a work life, um, perhaps you have a religious life, you have multiple aspects, a political life. What you do in each of those environments might be slightly different, but each of them must be you. The one thing that will kill a culture, in my opinion, faster than anything else is not being who you are. People can sense it. The human element is really amazing. It never ceases to surprise me that subtle things can actually say a tremendous amount more than you may have intended, right? Now, especially that we're all on video and not perhaps thinking about the way we comport ourselves as we would if we were on a stage or if we were in a meeting. Facial expressions, I can give you a glaring example. Someone actually said to me, what? They sent me an IM while I was in a meeting and they said, what's bothering you? And I said, what are you talking about? They said, you're making quite a face. And I said, well, I'm making a face because I'm 63 years old and you're showing me a spreadsheet with a million pieces of data on it. And I'm squinting because I can barely see it. It really wasn't a psychological statement. Thank you for raising that though, because I was unaware that I was doing it. I was squinting. So I think knowing, knowing who you are and knowing that people pay attention is really important. I know who I am. I'm very caring. I am relentlessly driven. You and I know that. Yes. We share that quality together. 
Um, and I am, uh, for better or worse, persistently curious, um, and annoyingly curious to some and hopefully pleasantly curious to others about virtually everything. That's why you learn to see connections. That's how you build a culture where all of a sudden you discover, huh, that person is doing this job, but they have this background. That person asked that question and had no background in it. Let's shift things up. Let's expose them to different things. Let's make that team sing. And let's do the most important thing in culture, right? Which is drive joy. When you have joy in what you're doing, I always tell people, look at the lines on my face. You can tell I've been around for a while, but look at where the lines are. They're from smiling. It's a life lived with curiosity and joy. So make your objectives clear, align them with your larger organization, and then build a team that listens and respects to one respects one another. And, and I think you have to make sure everybody has the ability to contribute. These are fundamental rules that you learned in kindergarten on how to behave well with others. It's not complicated to say. It is not easy to do. That's so true. And, and you're spot on. The two words that came to mind as I was listening to you talk there, Edna, is authenticity and connection. And being yourself as a leader, being transparent, which includes being willing to show your vulnerabilities uh, in that transparency and that authenticity. And then the connection, which at the end of the day, you know, leading a team, there's that human factor that you talked about and the ability to create a connection to inspire and hopefully support that overall feeling of joy. Really liked where you were going with that. Superb. So let's look ahead. When you think about achieving an even more secure future for your stakeholders, what gets you the most excited? Well, I, you know, this has been an exciting time for me. As you know, I had the privilege of spending 20 years at a fantastic place that we met at, uh, Cisco. And learned a tremendous amount from um, leaders and, quite frankly, every single person at the company across a full spectrum of a variety of areas. At Microsoft, I, I have the privilege of working with people who are of the same mindset. And what we're doing is, and they're embracing this with wild abandon, we're building security and resilience in, in process, in design, in technology, and in the way we behave as humans. And I have to tell you, I, I have had the privilege of collaborating with some of the most innovative minds in the industry. And we're incorporating all of it into our model, all for the purpose of ensuring my commitment, which is that we're able to empirically prove that we are the number one trusted cloud platform on the planet. Well, that's something to really get excited about, and especially in the context of the breadth of leaders uh, and experts you've had a chance to work with, um, you combine all that and and just use that as a platform to continue um, for success in the future. So as we start to wind things down here, Edna, do you have any other final advice for business le- leaders that are seeking their own long-term success without unnecessarily increasing risk to their organizations? 
Yeah, that's a that's that uh, age old question. Can you move forward without taking risk? Uh, I would argue no. But you ask the question in an intriguing way, which is unnecessarily increasing risk. So I'm going to read into your question an inherent assumption that risk is something that can be good and can move us forward. So I would argue probably three things, right? First of all, keep the comprehensive picture in mind. Don't be narrow in your focus. Have a layered architecture. Think about things in layers. Uh, if I just came to you and said cybersecurity and I'm, I have the best information security on the planet, I would tell you I would have failed because I wouldn't have had the four other fundamental elements of security. The third thing I think is build security and resiliency into your people process and tools. Amazing things will happen. A tool will set a flag. Somebody will come to you and say, hey, I saw this. And I was wondering, is this an issue? People will start to send you messages that say, I read this, somebody is buying somebody else. Does this have impact for us? Because they're thinking with resiliency and security in mind. And then finally, it comes down to what you know is near and dear to my heart. You can't deliver unless you understand operations and you cannot achieve superb world-class operational efficiency without three things, monitoring, monitoring, and monitoring yourself and others and what you deliver together. I think that's easy to remember. Monitor, monitor, monitor. Thanks again for sharing that and all of your insights today. They've been timely. They're very compelling, Edna, and we'll be very interested in reconnecting with you over time as we move forward, as we see new technology developments and our global uh, economy uh, and other supply chain related uh, challenges um, get overcome and as we go forward into the future. So thanks again for joining to talk about this really important topic today. It was my privilege and honor. Thank you for having me, Dan. And a reminder, if you like this podcast, your feedback is very, very important. Please make sure to go out and rate and review Market Impact Insights. You can do that very easily out on Apple Podcasts. Feedback is really, really important. So please take a moment to do that. And also, as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.